This is Ye Old Dragons Library, the storytelling podcast. Here in Season 3, we're featuring the steampunk series, Guardians of the Time Stream. This is a chapter from the prequel story, Odessa Fremont. Ready for fun with fantastical fiction? Then let's begin. Chapter 24 S had to go into the bushes to change into her costume, two miles away from the station where she was to board the train. Miller laughed at her when she emerged in all her fluttery white glory. S hoped he was cramped and stifling in the massive trunk that her persona, Miss Amelia Forsyth, had loaded onto the train when she boarded, and the porters handling it had dropped it three times when they loaded it. She hoped the lock didn't open immediately from the inside, as Henshaw had promised it would. Not that she wanted Miller stuck inside there. He needed to be out and positioned in hiding, for the moment the blue-eyed gang members threw open the doors of the baggage car, looking for the payroll safe. She simply wanted him to be inconvenienced, a little panicky, and as uncomfortable as she felt right now. "'Well, don't you look good enough to eat,' a low voice drawled while a shadow passed over her and a cloud of some heavily spiced cologne threatened to choke her. S looked up, fluttering her fan at twice the speed. Her gaze met the deepest blue eyes she had ever seen, surrounded by long, thick, almost obscenely curled lashes. Why did men have such gorgeous eyelashes, while women in their family line had short, stubby things? That's one! S. almost laughed when she recognized one of the gang. She hadn't quite believed the description of the eye color they all shared until now. I assure you, sir, better men than you have tried. My daddy and my brothers have sent them all packing. She fluttered her fan faster and turned sideways just enough on the seat that a man of higher society would have recognized the social cut and repented of his vulgar words. "'Sugar Plum, I don't see your daddy or brothers,' he said with a chuckle, and slid into the seat next to her. He didn't even bother removing the journals filling the seat, but settled on top of them. "'Now ain't that sweet. Been a long time since I seen a lady blushing.' He leaned closer, gusting breath filled with a mixture of rum and peppermint into her face. S bit back the retort burning on her tongue, that she doubted he had ever seen a real lady in his life.' The idiot couldn't tell the difference between a blush and a red wave of fury. Granted, her heart was racing with some tense excitement. The Secret Service had been wrong. The Pinkertons were right, and the trap would indeed close on the gang today. Not that it mattered one whit to her that she wouldn't have to suffer through another trip in this horrific dress. She fluttered her fan higher, concentrating on being a witless, high-society, sponge-sugar confection that no one would take seriously until she shoved her pistols up their unfairly patrician noses. Just how far down does that pretty pink wave go, anyway, he added, and waggled his eyebrows at her. Did this fool think he was being charming? Unfortunately, she knew of a dozen girls right off the top of her head who would swoon at such crude flirtation. S raised the fan higher, so only her eyes could be seen over the lacy edge. She turned, catching movement over her uninvited seatmate's head. Another young man, with the same chiseled cheekbones and deep blue eyes, stepped up next to their seat and slapped the first man's shoulder. 
None of that, Bo, the second man said. He nodded to S and touched the brim of his Stetson. Sorry about the imposition, ma'am. She nodded to him and lowered the fan enough for him to see her simper. At least she hoped it was a sticky sweet simper and fluttered her eyelashes at him. Whatever expression she managed to paste on her face, it irritated her erstwhile suitor and made his brother or cousin flush a little. The first man got up and stomped away without a backward glance, while the one who retrieved him nodded again to S. He looked back once, meeting her gaze, before the two opened the door and stepped out to cross the connector to the next car. "'Ain't he a handsome one?' a girl whispered, a seat or two behind S. "'Which one?' another girl responded, her voice slightly louder. They both giggled. S contemplated the unfairness of physical form not matching the spirit and soul within the body. If the changes in a man's morals, the choices he made in life, could be reflected in his face and form, that would solve a great many of society's ills. People would be warned with one quick glance what type of person they dealt with, and a great many quacks and patent medicine salesmen and other such deceivers would be deprived of their prey. A steam whistle's scream, almost simultaneous with a jolt and the shriek of brakes, interrupted her thoughts. Her face warmed as she realized she had let herself get distracted. Shouldn't the appearance of two of the six robbers have warned her to be doubly alert? What kind of a Pinkerton was she going to be? Granted, Horace told her to stick to her role of a useless ninny and even feel free to shriek or faint or have a cataleptic fit if the situation so demanded. But that was no excuse. The one-third occupied car around her erupted with cries and chatter as the train screamed to a halt. One glance out the window told S the train was still three miles outside of Watertown. That fit in with Horace's belief that the blue-eyed gang made their home in the surrounding area, and they used their familiarity with the hills and ravines and forests to assist in their getaway. Right now, the rest of the gang approached the train. Gunshots answered that thought. S tugged her wide-brimmed hat down further on her head to shield her face as she peered out the window. Maybe Horace hadn't been playing games with her when he saddled such an enormous, wasteful piece of headgear on her. Between all the lace and bows and the ridiculous curls of the strawberry blonde wig she wore, her face was in shadows. No one would know where she was looking, and hopefully couldn't see her expression if it gave away what she was thinking and planning. The train was only six cars long, besides the engine, coal car, and caboose. There was one passenger car ahead of S's, then two baggage cars and two holding horses, supposedly going to the army garrison 15 miles on the other side of Watertown. The sound of a baggage car door sliding open came clear through the dying squeal of brakes and wheels slowing and the hiss of steam escaping the engine. Everybody out, a cheerful baritone voice called, and Essa's unwanted suitor strolled back through the car, revolvers in both hands, gesturing like the conductor of some barbaric orchestra. The other passengers cowered back in their seats, shrieking, but obeyed quickly enough when he gestured with the guns. S debated pretending to faint. Then his gaze met hers, and something in his deep blue eyes told her not to give him any excuse to touch her. She got to her feet, clutching her fan and abandoning everything else. All the traffic to exit the car went past her seat, and she was blocked in for a crucial few seconds. 
No, you don't, Sugar Plum, he drawled, reaching across two seats to catch hold of her sleeve when she was about to step into the aisle. Pretty lady like you deserves special treatment. He twisted her arm behind her back, making it painfully easy to guide her down the aisle, through the door at the back of the car, and down the steps. Two steps from the bottom, S deliberately missed the step and fell. Her scream was utterly genuine when her escort didn't let go of her arm. Granted, he did loosen his grip so her shoulder wasn't dislocated by the fall, but she promised herself she was going to kick him where Yuli told her it would leave a lasting impression. She stayed on her knees in the cinders beside the track as the robber stepped down behind her. All the other passengers clustered together, their eyes big, frightened into silence by her scream. What'd you go and do that for? Mess up that pretty dress. He bent down and looped his arm through hers to yank her back up to her feet. At the next car, two men on horseback climbed from their saddles through the open sliding door. Two more men on horseback came from the front of the train. S. guessed that they had been sitting on the tracks to force the engineer to stop the train. The sixth man of the gang came down the steps from the car ahead of the one in which S. had been riding. All six members of the blue-eyed gang were present and accounted for. Movement in the corner of her eye brought a glad leap to S.'s pulse. It took all her self-control not to look to the top of the train where, per the plan, Horace and Henshaw now ran from where they had climbed up between the baggage cars. The sliding door of the horse car banged open as Butler and Yates leaped out on horseback. Gunshots blazed from the baggage car, and S. prayed Miller and Cooper were the ones who had shot first. Butler and Yates raced past her, as her captor loosened his grip in shock. The two men on horseback swore and turned as one to flee. S. cringed at the deafening gunfire. "'Hold it right there, McGuire,' Horace barked, coming to a stop and pointing his gun at the man standing behind S. and her captor. "'Which one?' the man holding S. sneered. He yanked harder on her arm, twisting it again. "'Got me a pretty—' Snarling fury, S. twisted around, dropping her fan and snatching at his belt with her free hand. Using that as her pivot point, she flung her legs up in the air as she had learned to mount a horse trotting around the circus ring. He oofed most satisfactorily as the force of both legs slammed into the side of his head. Down he went, with S. on top of him. Gunfire exploded around her, and she spotted a man dropping down from the top of the train. She hoped that was Henshaw. Most of the women shrieked, but S. distinctly heard several of the men laugh and whoop. She bounced on the downed man's chest and managed a blow to his face with each fist before rolling off him. Her foot landed on her dropped fan, making it crunch and crack, and she stumbled, going to one knee. A sense of movement from behind her had her dodging, tumbling forward, hampered by her skirts. She snatched at the pieces of her fan as she twisted and went sideways, rolling down the incline from the tracks. The world tumbled around her for a few seconds, and as she struggled to her knees and then to her feet, she looked up, straight into the eyes of her unwanted suitor. He snarled, his handsome face twisting so it did, indeed, just for a heartbeat, reflect his soul. He brought up his revolver. "'Down, girl!' Horace shouted. Later, S. didn't know why or even how she managed it, she flung the pieces of the fan straight into the man's face, aiming for those ugly, blazing blue eyes. Simultaneously, a roar deafened her, and an incredible force slammed into her hip, twisting her around and slamming her into the ground. Her hat flew off, 
despite the pins holding it to her wig and despite the pins and clips holding the wig to her hair. Her head slammed into the ground and she saw stars. Fire flashed through her body, radiating from her hip before she could get her breath back. S struggled upright, difficult when her hip ached so fiercely and she lay on an incline with her feet higher than her head. Men were shouting and cursing around her and more guns fired. She scrambled to get her revolver from the holster around her knee, blinking tears from her eyes while the stars slowly faded. Her hands shook in time with a throbbing in her hip as she looked for someone, anyone, to shoot. She nearly shot at Yates before she recognized him. The concern wrinkling his face turned to alarm, which made her feel distinctly queasy. S knew better than to look at the source of the throbbing fire. She held up her revolver with one hand, while she tried to brace herself with the other and get turned around so she could stand. What was the idiot man doing, just staring at her? Didn't he know there were six armed train robbers that needed capturing? Stay down, Yates said, reaching for her with both hands, as if he would hold her down. He spilled a string of curses, so fast she almost couldn't tell words apart. Slowly, it dawned on S that the gunfire had stopped. That had to be a good sign. Yates' curses stopped when Horace stepped into her field of vision. Slowly shaking his head, he went down on one knee next to her. You want to tell me where you learned to move like that, girl? He didn't wait for her to respond, but nodded to Yates. The two of them put an arm around her back and the other arm under her knees and lifted her. Oh, didn't I mention? S gasped, feeling as if her head wanted to separate from her shoulders as they started up the incline to the train. I learned trick riding. Several quick, deep breaths fought the queasies that knotted her stomach. Riding at the circus. How about knife throwing? Yates growled. Not, not so good. Not so good, she says, Horace muttered. Heaven help us when she does get good. Later, Butler gave her a sketch he had done of the aftermath of the short, bloody fight. One of the knives from her Chinese fan had gone into Bo's left eye. Another had caught in the fleshy part of his throat, just before the hinge of his jaw, and a third stuck in the soft indentation above the dip of his collarbone. Massive splotches of black ink filled in for the puddles of blood that erupted from the man's slit throat. We've come to a break in the story. I'd like to take a moment to tell you about a book that you might be interested in reading. What if Sleeping Beauty Wanted to Sleep? What if the sleep was amnesia, or just a long, bad dream? What if her beauty sleep lasted too long? What if she sacrificed herself to sleep to protect her family? Those are just some of the questions explored in the new fairy tales anthology, Perchance to Dream. Seventeen authors present new twists on the story of Sleeping Beauty, Perchance to Dream, Fairy Tale Anthology Number 3. From Ye Old Dragon Books. And now, back to the story. Henshaw had some surgery experience gained during the war, when it had been vital to remove bullets on the battlefield, rather than waiting to get a wounded man to a surgeon. All the passengers were crowded into the first passenger car, while the Pinkertons sequestered their bound and gagged prisoners in the baggage car. Horace stood over S, making her down one shot glass after another of bourbon, until her extremities went numb and her eyes went hazy, and all the sounds around her reached her ears through cotton wool a foot thick. 
He held her down and badgered her to sing filthy saloon songs with him while Henshaw dug the bullet out of her hip. Then he held her hand until she passed out at last, while the other Pinkerton did a crude sewing job with a curved needle and quilting thread borrowed from a passenger's abandoned belongings. When S. woke up, Horace was still holding her hand, though she assumed he had to let go at some time. It would have been awkward getting her off the train in Watertown, then carrying her to the doctor's office, then getting her out of her bloody dress, redressing her wound, and putting her into a nightshirt. He offered her a foul-tasting, gritty tonic when the first attempt at moving her head sent a seasick throbbing down her throat to her stomach and then out through the rest of her body. S. didn't know if it cured her hangover by simply making her sick in a new way, or it did sweep the residue of the alcohol from her blood. She was most grateful that she kept it in her rebelling stomach, positive that hurling it back up again would be even worse than getting it down. Horace proved just how insightful he was when he didn't ask her any questions, didn't make any inane comments promising she would feel better soon. He brought her a bottle of chilled sarsaparilla to sip, which washed the foul taste from her mouth and helped settle her stomach more. Then he proceeded to tell her all the important details of the gunfight and capture. Essentially, the blue-eyed gang had been captured. Only one had surrendered without needing to be shot or punched into submission. Two of the cousins were dead, one from S's fan knives, and the other from his horse rearing up and falling backwards on him, cracking his skull in several ribs. Dr. Sullivan hadn't determined yet if it was the blow to his skull that killed him, or broken bones had pierced vital organs and he bled to death. All they were sure of was that he had lost consciousness on the short ride to Watertown and died while waiting for Dr. Sullivan to finish tending to S. Hope you don't mind, Horace said, after they had sat in quiet for several minutes, while S. digested the outcome of the amazingly quick skirmish. Mind what? She smiled at the cracked, wheezing sound of her voice. A mouthful of sarsaparilla remained in the bottle, and she saluted him with it before drinking it to moisten her throat. Well, it's hard to keep events like last night out of the papers. Confounded telegraph was bad enough, but now newspapers have ponied up big money to keep reporters traveling all over the country with photography equipment, or artists who can draw good and fast and they use airships to get stories everywhere in one-tenth the usual time. I can remember when we thought the Pony Express was too fast. He shook his head, then slapped his knee for punctuation. We can't keep it out of the news that a woman was involved in the capture of the blue-eyed gang, not with all the witnesses. What did you tell them? S. took a few deep breaths, fighting a new surge of nausea that had nothing to do with her hangover and the background throbbing of her hip. She blinked hard, surprised by the tears that came at the thought of her grandparents' reactions, or worse, Yulie's, if they read her name and a description of her actions in a newspaper account. Basically, I lied. Horace winked and squeezed her hand. I told them Mrs. Flora Lewis, a Pinkerton agent for the last three years, participated in the operation. I told them you were 26 widow of a Secret Service agent who died on a raid on a resurrectionist hideout in Oklahoma Territory. Too bad your wig came off in the tussle. Otherwise, we could hide what you look like. S. laughed. Not for long, but it felt good to laugh, at least until the throbbing resumed in the base of her skull. The sound of her laughter brought the rest of the team from the outer room of the doctor's offices. The other Pinkertons were in their shirt sleeves, 
hair must, food stains on a few shirts. Their voices were subdued, but their faces brightened as they pulled up chairs or found places to perch. And S. found herself suddenly close to tears, with the realization that they were worried about her. Cooper reported that the U.S. Marshal had sent a team of men to take the remaining four members of the Blue-Eyed Gang into custody. Several telegrams had come from the Pinkerton Central Office, commending the team for their success, authorizing a transfer of funds to pay for their expenses, and telling Horace he was spot on. S. felt a tightening in the atmosphere at that pronouncement, and found everyone looking back and forth several times between her and Horace. She held her breath, sensing something momentous had happened. Didn't doubt it for a minute, Horace said, his somber expression slitting into a grin. He held out his hand for hers and pumped her hand three times. You made it, Odessa. You're officially a Pinkerton. As the others grinned and laughed and shook her hand and congratulated her, S. realized that no one had asked if she really wanted to be a Pinkerton. It was just assumed. Some of the tightness in her gut fled when she realized that was more than just fine with her. She couldn't think of anything better she wanted to do with her life. That is, until the situation settled down in South America. We've got men on the lookout for your brother and listening for news of your grandparents, don't you worry, Horace said, as if he had heard her thoughts. You're one of us, and we take care of our own. Pardon me for pointing out the obvious, Yates said, drawing out his words, but just how do we take care of Odessa when we don't know what in tarnation you're talking about? I can make a pretty good guess, filling in the holes where I don't know the facts, Horace said. Want me to tell them, or do you want to do the honors? You tell them, and I'll fill in the holes as you go along, S. said. Horace started with the day she came into the Philadelphia office in disguise. He sighed loudly and muttered about having a bad day, that he couldn't see the 14-year-old girl underneath the widow's garments and makeup. The others made comments, teasing, and S. had to fill in and explain the help she had with costume and makeup. That led to backtracking to detail her time at Miss Van Hastings' academy, and then telling how she had discovered the resurrectionist headquarters underneath the school. Horace described what little he had been able to learn about Yulee, and the paucity of information he had been able to obtain about the elder Fremont's activities in South America. S. then had to explain her grandparents' archaeological work and the books they had written. By lunchtime, broth and custard for her until they could be sure her stomach would behave, Horace had described the entertainment S. had provided foiling the burglary attempts at the hotel. Then she had to backtrack and explain her time at the circus, the skills she had learned in sleight of hand, trick riding, trick shooting, and assisting with the steam engines and other mechanisms that provided the illusions and tricks for circus performers. She actually earned several whistles and a few soft-voiced curses, all entirely respectful, when she had to explain her association with ancient Randolph Sutter, recognizing resurrectionists who were about to make an attempt on President Lincoln's life. "'How old are you again, Odessa?' Cooper said, after they had laughed together over the test Horace had given her, and how she had managed to irritate them all and pick their pockets just two days before. "'My friends call me S,' she said, "'and I'll be seventeen in two weeks.' "'Girl!' he shook his head. "'You've crammed a lifetime into the last two years. "'Why aren't you looking for some peace and quiet for a change?' Doing what? She braced herself for suggestions of going back to school, taking a tour of Europe and attending a finishing school, or even finding a husband and settling down to raise a house full of children. 
Boys, you don't put a fine racehorse to pulling a dairy wagon. And to a man, all of you would cuss out anyone who suggested you do anything other than what you are now. Horace nodded to S. The girl is where she belongs, doing what the good Lord made her to do. Am I right? He winked at her as the other five agents agreed, nearly in unison. The End We've come to the end of the chapter and the end of Season 3. I hope you've enjoyed this prequel book in the Guardians of the Time Stream series. Look for the next book, The Blue Lotus Society, which will be the book for Season 6, coming in 2024. We're going to change up things a little for Season 4. Come back next week for the preview. Season 4 will include some Christmas stories, just in time for the most wonderful and blessed time of the year. As always, thanks for listening.